Have you ever been at an intersection with your indicator on left and wondered what would happen if you turned right? How would that decision to change direction and take a different road impact your life? This is I'm at a Crossroad, the podcast about life's ultimate plot twists, where you will hear stories from people who have faced a life-changing decision. This episode... I remember I was looking at the Venetian blinds and thinking, I'm in jail. We all want to make our parents proud, but sometimes what they want for us can lead to unhappiness. For me, that was one of the worst days of my life. It could make you so stressed that your body develops mermaid features. I had this growth growing in my neck. It was a remnant of a gill. Following your passions can sometimes come at a cost. My dad said, you have an hour to pack your bags and leave. Neeti Labot's story of holding on to her dreams starts in India. Hi, my name is Neeti Labot. This is the story about my decision to choose to follow the arts. I grew up, you know, with, with parents that had already experienced quite a lot of trauma and disenfranchisement and felt that life was quite unstable. My parents had actually eloped from India because they came from different backgrounds. They came from different parts of India, from different religions. And at the time they were very young and it wasn't considered the right thing to go and get married at that stage or in that way. And they were a little impatient and felt the world was against them and decided to take this huge step. So they themselves were at a crossroad at that point. Um, And they, for better or for worse, made the decision to run away together and get married. And that had a sort of knock-on effect where they didn't feel they could live in India after they'd finished their university degrees, they left. They were going to actually go to Copenhagen for my father to do a master's, but he was invited to visit friends on the way in Iran and got a job under the Shah. And so they ended up actually living in Iran for three to four years with a job and a house and a car, which is where I was about to be born when the Ayatollah came and the revolution happened. So then they had to escape from Iran and eventually found their way to Australia. When they arrived in Australia, I was about three years old. And, of course, they had no money because they had been cut off, really, and had to make their own way. So there was a lot of chaos, and they came to Australia basically with nothing and had to start again from scratch. So it was a really long haul making their way to the point where they had any financial security at all. It took absolutely years. They wanted to live by the beach. So we always lived on the northern beaches in Sydney, which meant we were nowhere near any of the Indian diaspora. So we grew up quite isolated and within a fairly Caucasian environment and just had to work really, really hard. We were all part of that. It was the three of us working to just, you know, keep things together and make ends meet and survive. And they tried really, really hard to set up some stability for themselves. And it was not easy because they both loved the arts. My mother was a singer and a performer. And my father just absolutely adored music and the arts and film and all of that, but chose to be an architect, which was not a very stable career to have in the early 80s in Australia, which meant that he mostly was driving taxis and selling peanuts and trying desperately to get work. 
So that is the background of the context. You know, in terms of when I grew up, we were that little family that runs a shop, you know, <laughs> the, the typical Indian um, corner store that's open from 7 in the morning till 8pm at night and uh, might sell the dodgy frozen curry. And so the real message was you can love something, but perhaps it won't support you. Perhaps it won't be the thing that has your back when you need it. So because we had this shop, you know, which we basically lived behind, so it kind of framed our day and our sort of our life, working life as well as student life. I'd go to school in the morning, I'd come back in the afternoon and then I'd work. And I worked every day you know, after school. Didn't learn to ride a bike or go out with friends or any of that kind of thing. It was very much a survival mentality. So I kind of grew up quite confident and self-assured and when it came to choosing a career, I went with my loves. I really thought I would be a writer or, you know, something of that sort. That was kind of what I was drawn to as I used to sit in that shop and listen to jazz music and read books in my free time. That was my world in lieu of the things that perhaps children would usually do. And so I was a little stunned because when we got to the point where Year 12 was happening and, you know, the HSC was happening, my parents were too busy working to really interfere. They never really interfered in what I was doing. They didn't even really realise that I was studying for the HSC and that the exams were just around the corner necessarily. So, for example, it was my birthday, the 2nd of November, I turned 18, and I decided that day I was going to grab a paper from the shop and I was going to sit in the back garden and I was going to read and I wasn't going to do anything. And it just happened to be the day before the beginning of the exams. And they were like, don't you have an exam tomorrow? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, shouldn't you be studying? And (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I did that already. Today's my day off. It's my birthday. When they realised that I had done well, they were like, oh, but you applied for medicine, didn't you? And you applied for law and you applied for, you know, and I was like, no, I actually thought I'd take a year off and travel and figure it out. And that's kind of when things went a bit pear-shaped. I had to justify the fact that I really felt that I should do what in my bones felt like the right thing to do for me, but they weren't having a bar of it. So ultimately I had to apply. It was let's say, highly persuaded to apply uh, to study dental surgery. It got to the point where I got an acceptance letter. For me, that was one of the worst days of my life because that was not what I was expecting to be handed. I was really hoping that that would sort it for me and then I could just pursue what I wanted, they'd get off my back, but it was the opposite. They said, well, of course you're going to accept this and do dental surgery, and I said that's not what I want and they said well we've worked so hard all our lives so that we could give you an opportunity here's your opportunity if you're not going to take it we should just pack up and go back to India and I remember racing out the house and running down the street we actually had some land that we were building on which was essentially just a a work site with a hole dug into it and I remember climbing up this work site finding myself a space, digging myself a little hole in the ground and just laying in there in the fetal position and going, I just want the earth to swallow me up right now because this is literally the worst moment of my life. It just felt like everything was wrong, you know, that moment where you just want to disappear. But there was nowhere to go. 
and I was covered in dirt and it was cold and it was dark and so I had to traipse back and accept my fate and you know decide to toe the line and do what they said that was day one where I chose the wrong decision but I guess I was coerced into it and there was not much choice I had at the time really I was a very sheltered 18 year old with no backup plan they said you know we understand that you love art we understand you love music writing etc etc but you can do all of that on the side and you can earn this amazing amount of money in a short space of time or maybe a few days a week and you can go and do the things you love the rest of the time and that seemed like a decent enough compromise so I said okay well I'll give that a go so the first year I studied dental surgery and at the end of it I said I tried it it's not hard it's not you know my thing can I make a switch they said no no you've got to continue because you've started now and follow through and I was like okay Year two, I actually applied to do distance education in the arts. And so I did my dental surgery degree on campus and then I did an arts degree by correspondence. I'm not sure if that was technically legal, but that's what I needed to do (laughs) to be sane. That's what I had to do. At the end of that year, I realised that I just absolutely adored what I was studying in the arts side and that the dental surgery was really, I was just suffering through it. So year three didn't go so well for me. I started to suffer from quite a lot of anxiety and depression and it got to the point where I had this growth growing in my neck and no one could figure out what it was and eventually I had exploratory surgery and it turned out to be a really weird kind of like, it's called a thymic cyst. It was a remnant of a gill, essentially, that shouldn't be there. And the surgeon did some crazy papers on it some medical papers about this strange half mermaid that he'd found and the long and short of it was that my body was actually physically reacting to the sort of level of stress that I was under and I deteriorated pretty quickly and I realised at some point this was the crossroad. I realised for my own survival that I had to make a switch and I also realised that despite how much I honoured my parents and respected their view and that they were doing it out of fear and concern for me and just wanted me to have a stable and secure life, that they weren't going to have my back. And I had to make the decision about what I was going to do with that. I was in the dental school. I remember I was looking at the Venetian blinds and thinking, I'm in jail. (laughs) I feel like I'm in jail. And then I thought, what if I escape? What if I walk out? What if I just step out the door and I never turn around and help? Whatever happens, doesn't matter. I'll just deal with the consequences. I remember very clearly sort of stepping out of the building and thinking, bygones be bygones, whatever happens, however the chips fall, I don't care. And I got panicked calls from the dental school saying, before you make any decisions, just have a chat with our staff, have a chat with our dean. And I had a chat with the staff and they were saying things like, well, but why do you want to leave? I said, well, because I feel that this is not my best place. I feel like a caged bird here and there are things that I want to do. There's changes I want to make in the space of healing and promotion, but not in this way. This is one person at a time. I want to do something more global. I feel I can heal hearts through storytelling. Weirdly enough, my tutors would say things to me like, well, I always wanted to be a drummer. And I'm like, well, why don't you be a drummer? Oh, no, it's too late for me. You know, I've got family, I've got a mortgage, blah, blah, blah. It's just too difficult now. And I thought, I can't be you. I can't do this, you know, this is not good enough for me. The dean sat me down and said, 
do you realise that in the first year of being a dental surgeon you'll make over $100,000 a year? And I said, is that your argument? Is that what's supposed to convince me to stay? Thank you very much for helping make this decision easier. <laughs> and so essentially I realised that, yeah, this was just, it was just not the right ethic. I wasn't supposed to be in that space. And I stepped out and I went home and I told my parents what had happened. My dad said, you have an hour to pack your bags and leave. And I looked at my mum and she sort of shrugged. I guess there was internal stuff that I wasn't going to get into there, but I just went, okay, that's what I'll do. And I packed my bags. I was a little bit less depended on them by that stage anyway, in that I had a wonderful boyfriend who said, come over. So I came over to his house for the night, but I knew that I couldn't trespass on, you know, him and his family. So I actually contacted a friend of mine who was studying at the police academy in Goulburn and who had been allocated a cottage. And he said, come and stay for as long as you want. So I caught a train and I spent two to three weeks in Goulburn and I cried a lot and he cooked for me and I sort of sat there and tried to figure out what the next step was, given that I didn't have a home or any money or any of that kind of thing. Yeah, it was a pretty dark moment, but I had to take the leap of faith and hope that things would just work out. Whilst I healed a little bit from the whole experience, then some health practitioners stepped in to kind of, I guess, mediate with my family and we sorted it out and eventually I did come home. And then there was sort of a process of trying to rally and find a way forward and for me that was to apply it for film school. At the time they didn't have a bachelor's at AFTERS and so the next best thing was UTS. They wanted me to write a statement about why I wanted to join as a mature age student. And so I told them what was in my heart, which was that I honestly felt that the only way forward for me was to be a storyteller. And that was the way I felt I could best contribute to society. And particularly in the space of issues that really concerned me at the time. Things like religious intolerance, which my parents had experienced. Things like the outfall of that which they went through when they were in Iran. And also more pressing concerns for my generation, like climate change. And so that was my impassioned letter, and I got in. And from that moment, things just flowed for me. I think film is that wonderful nexus point between all the different disciplines, where a story that's on the page meets the imagery that's within photography and art and the music and storytelling of song and composition. So for me, it was a no-brainer that that is the strongest discipline in which to be able to convey something in a rich and textured way. It was a little bit of a healing process, finding my way back to my parents, but I think... The overriding feeling was one of compassion because I really did understand where they were coming from. I knew they didn't mean it with any malice. They were two young people in a very big world that had not treated them very well and they were on their own and they still are. Migrant experience in Australia can be very isolating and we only have each other, which is why perhaps 
you know, a different person would have gone, oh, well, stuff it, I'll just do it anyway. But in my case, it, was, it had to be very strongly considered, very kind of, you know, aching decision to decide to defy them and do something. I had to make the leap of faith that it was the right decision for me. And, I mean, you know, there have been moments where I have questioned that because, let's face it, being in the arts is really dicey. My father was absolutely right. It's not necessarily about talent. It's about opportunity. So opportunity doesn't necessarily come to those who are most deserving. There's been a lot of issues to sort of work through, but ultimately I don't think I had a choice. I think my body and my mind and my heart were telling me that I needed to make that change for my soul. So now my relationship with my parents is obviously much, much better. They came to an acceptance. I don't know if they love it, but they accepted it. I still occasionally get the, oh, but if you'd been a dentist, we, you know. <laughs> and I laugh it off and I said, yeah, I probably wouldn't be here if I was still a dentist, guys. But anyway, it's quite a high suicide rate uh, and there's a reason for that. I think a lot of people can be trapped in their careers and, you know, potentially, depending on which career you're in, there isn't necessarily much option for change or, you know, for alternative once you're in it. I don't see how I could have made different choices under the circumstances that I was in. I think I did the best that I could at the time and I moved forward from my gut instinct. I'm not necessarily sure that there was another way to do it. I suppose I could have been more pragmatic and finished dental surgery and had that in my pocket, but I felt like that would be a gilded cage. I felt that would be a ticket to a lifetime of compromising on what I believed in. I think the thing about leaps of faith is no one tells you that once you've had a leap of faith, you've got to keep having faith <laughs> and you've got to keep sometimes jumping at leap all the time. I was just having a conversation with a colleague at AFTAS around favourite films and my favourite film franchise is Indiana Jones and my absolute favourite film from Indiana Jones is The Last Crusade. And the reason that I love it so much is that leap of faith moment that he has to take where he has to jump and he knows that he could fall but he just has to believe that there's something there to support him and he's going to push through and have some you know, faith in the divine. And then he does it. But in real life, you kind of have to keep doing it, particularly when things get tough or you don't know the way forward. It's a pretty nuanced space being in the arts. Like, you know, you may be in milk and honey for a while and then there might be a period where there's just nothing going on and you think, oh, my God, will I ever work again? And these sorts of times you have to keep relying on that sense of faith and self-worth and belief that there's something that you have to say and that it's worth saying and it's worth you pursuing it. Now I have two children and I advise them to follow their hearts and, you know, yes, it's about talent but it's also about perseverance and then maybe also have a small backup plan as well. You know, have a, have a backup plan but don't give up your dreams. Thank you for listening to I'm at a Crossroad. If this episode has touched on issues you're struggling with and you feel like you need resources or support, go to beyondblue.org.au or for 24-hour free counselling in Australia, call Lifeline on 13 11 14 and please look after yourself. I'm at a Crossroad is produced on Bidjigal and Gadigal land by students from the Australian Film, Television and Radio School. 
we would like to acknowledge the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the traditional owners and custodians of this land and pay our respects to Elders past and present. This episode was edited by Campbell Moore. Sound designed by Harry Hughes. Produced by Campbell Moore. Executive producers Tristan Black and Angela Chu.